Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Oh, you know, fine. Not thinking ahead to Tuesday at all. No, mm. no siree. I am clean and serene, my friend. How are you, American citizen and Floridian? Hmm, yes, feeling very glad that I don't have cable anymore because it means I'm seeing a lot fewer political ads than I do, that I have the last two times that I've been over for an election. Um, certainly the last time it really felt like if you were watching, you know, something on NBC and there were six adverts, like four of them would be an advert for a presidential campaign or a senatorial campaign or like your local congressperson. And it's very exasperating and exhausting <laughs> so and also my gym being closed because its roof got destroyed by a hailstorm in the summer meaning that i don't even have to see it like on the screens which was where i saw most of the political advertising in the last campaign it just means that it's now confined to you know 30 second bumpers at the beginning and end of youtube videos so that that has uh helped a little bit yeah i'm just girding myself as i think everyone is for yeah. you know an election that seems to be heading one way but also has a lot of kind of things going on in the background that has everyone nervous so yeah all, all we can do is wait and see what happens and try and hope that everything works out <laughs> it's a very tense time but apart from that uh, i've had quite a nice week uh, i as i mentioned last week i've been catching up on or, or re-watching a lot of um, early Spike Lee movies. I watched Jungle Fever for the first time, which I'd never seen before. I watched Crooklyn, which I'd never seen before. I if I had, But uh, if I had seen it before, I think I would have remembered it because that movie is absolutely brilliant. That's such a lovely, warm, you know, this semi-autobiographical account of his life, uh, of his family, you know, in the early 70s, and his relationship with his siblings and his mother, and it's got this great performances by, uh, great performances by Delroy, Delroy Lindo and Alfred Woodard as the parents, and it's just this, like, absolutely gorgeous, heartbreaking movie um, that I was really glad to have finally watched, having previously assumed that I had seen it. And then I also rewatched uh, Clockers, his adaptation of the... Richard Price novel. Oh, it's just a great, wonderfully well-made account of, like, you know, the war on drugs in New York in the in the nineties. And the thing I found really interesting about it, rewatching that after watching Jungle Fever as well, is that you can really see like him developing a more nuanced take on the world of kind of like drugs and addiction in a very short period of time, because like. Jungle Fever has this whole subplot, which I think really doesn't work now, which is all about Samuel L. Jackson playing Wesley Snipes' brother and he's addicted to crack and he's like constantly showing up at their parents' house and demanding money and eventually steal the television. And it just feels like so cartoonish in its depiction of addiction and of the, the, the kind of the world of crack users, particularly now in a post like The Wire world where I think we're all... All, or anyone who's seen those kind of stories is a little used to something that's got a bit more nuance to it. Yeah. And Clockers, 
I think you know as Richard Price would then like go and write write for the wire like I think has such a great a handle on that and I found it really interesting seeing like that contrast like so stark in such a short period of time suddenly realizing oh like in this one he really kind of depicts addicts and dealers as people as opposed to like caricatures which they kind of are in the world of, of Jungle Fever I mean Jungle Fever is a much more heightened movie in general but mm. in a way that I feel like looking at it now you think oh, this is this it doesn't feel right this feels like it's really <laughs> minimizing the difficulty of addiction for a lot of people yeah yeah and it was also interesting watching those movies back to back because like you suddenly realize that in the background of his early 90s movies he's really kind of capturing the whole political feeling of new york at the time in terms of like do the right thing at the end they talk about how there's an election coming and that was the election for david dinkins who was the first black mayor of new york there's lots of scenes in Jungle Fever, where the coffee shop that John Turturro runs, there's all these Italians who are furious that Rudy Giuliani lost that election and are very, very racist (laughs) about it. And then in Clockers, you know, uh, Michael Imperioli uh, plays a, a, a crooked cop who is constantly talking about how it's now Giuliani town because Giuliani then ran, won the next election and he's talking about law and order and all this sort of stuff and you're kind of thinking like, oh man, like Spike Lee was really capturing the arc of like progress for African-Americans, racist backlash, things becoming like worse for them that you see repeating a lot throughout American history. <laughs> and it's kind of like, it's a weird little microcosm that he has of like uh, American politics in and around New York at that time and the racial politics that is just you know him reflecting what he was thinking and seeing in real life and i found that to be like a really fascinating aspect of watching those movies so close together yeah that's the great thing about being able to have the opportunity to really kind of have your own personal season of a director Mm. and i've been re-watching a fair bit of pta as i want to do and there's something quite amazing about watching one particular filmmaker and whether that is a director or an actor or a producer, production company, kind of side by side, and how there isn't there isn't always necessarily a gap felt between them. Mm. So I mean, I think particularly with someone who is as kind of, I don't want to say singular in a reductive way, but like someone who has a very particular vision, and I don't just mean how it looks you know mm. but but it can just feel like oh this just feels like the next sentence in this book that they're writing you know film to film mm. yeah and I, I think it's also interesting uh, to compare pta and spike lee as well like they're they're directors who had like you know stock companies that they drew on for a lot of their work you know like actors who recur and i think it's fun watching when directors cast the same actors over and over but clearly are like trying to play with what they're good at like crooklyn and clockers were made like back to back and in crooklyn like delroy lindo is this like incredibly like sensitive portrayal of this musician father of this kind of like big brood and he's like really lovable but also like maybe a little like naive and not really sure about how the world works he's kind of so committed to his art over everything else and then in clockers he is like you know brutal drug kingpin and he still has like that charisma and charm to him because obviously he needs to keep everyone in line but it's really fascinating just seeing how much he 
is able to kind of like make those roles feel so distinctive uh you know working with the same people over and over Mm, mm. so we'll go on to the news for this week and really the only kind of like big story uh was the death of sean connery who passed away yesterday at the age of 90 obviously most famous for being the first on screen or first cinematic james bond and you know defining that role and defy being like this big part of like 60s sexuality in a large way probably largely responsible for people being called sean for a long period of time um i saw mike d'angelo the film writer sharing like a chart which basically showed that from the mid 60s onwards that that particular spelling of sean really shot up so there was clearly something there and i think it's still in the top 100 names so like hard to overstate his, his impact there but also you know um a very talented actor in other roles he took on his work with Sidney Lumet like was very varied and he did some amazing work with him in like like comic stuff like the man who would be king like incredibly brutal stuff like the offense and the hill obviously won his oscar for the untouchables you know a huge uh movie star and this kind of like real icon of cinema whilst also you know in his personal life being by a lot of accounts not a great guy and allegedly very pro hitting women so definitely not something to be overlooked in his despite you know what an icon he is of like late 20th century cinema yeah there's some things about him that are incredibly unsavory i think it's fair to say very fair to say ed and what i have found very revealing and troubling is the tension between the fact that the man was on his way to a century of life having been lived and that he was kind of you know a mature actor shall we say when he sort of broke out globally as the first James Bond you know Bond is a bit like the president you kind of have to be 35 and up no no (laughs) one's going to watch a 22 year old Bond right Mm. and he's kind of like the Dane in that way (laughs) cinematically like a certain crop of actors who get to play him and I just remember him in Marnie, you know, mm. and Marnie is a very fucked up film because it's, made, it's yeah. made by a very fucked up person about female sexuality and trauma, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, then was called frigidity. But, you know, a good a good slap into a, a psychoanalysis session and, you know, she's fixed so he can <laughs> so he can have sex with her. Uh, yeah. And it's been tricky because you can't have someone who was active really until, like you say, sort of the late 20th century and such a huge figure and deny the fact of him having that pull and that undeniable screen presence. Mm. But also just because he is at the forefront of that kind of adulation and in that place, it doesn't mean that he necessarily deserves to be or is uh, a good person and this is you know talking about separating art from artist and i'm like well one day when we stop seeing work as a virtue (laughs) we'll we'll stop confusing people's uh, moral character with their output um and i think it was uh samantha greer who's on twitter at sam m greer and i'm gonna just quote her entirely because i think it's perfect 
enjoyed Sean Connery on screen a lot, I, and there'll be a lot of nice things said about him, but hardly un- uh, hardly possible to untangle the guy for the fact he was a proud wife beater and advocated for violence against women, because that's <clears throat> that's the true the true case of it. And he the the his first comments were I think in an interview with Playboy or GQ or something like that, like it kind of around the time of Bond, um, when he <clears throat> was still the Bond incumbent. Um, but then he followed it up again when he was 57 in an interview with Barbara Walters being like, I haven't changed my mind. I'm staunch. Right. And we don't talk you know, enough about Diane um, Salento, who was married to him. And he he beat her and had absolutely no remorse for it or, or anything like like a nasty piece of work, Ed. And the <clears throat> funny thing is, is that being where I am, like in Scotland and watching a lot of Scottish filmmakers or, or people who are into film in Scotland, following them across various social media accounts and just the complete outpouring of like, what a legend. And the compassion <clears throat> that we have to have for people is we're, we're kind of at the mercy of what networks we're in as to when we find out about these things. I couldn't tell you, Ed, when I first found out that Sean Connery felt this way in the same way that when you kind of you know you almost as something as banal as you find something on the internet and people are like oh how did you hear about us and you're like I don't know that's kind of fallen away from my memory um yeah so we are all each at the mercy of finding out things and you know friends of mine who just didn't know who when I sort of posted these things were like oh I had no idea and I'm like well fair enough because we don't live in a society that has uh, smashed the patriarchy yet and mm. it's always like you know but he but he you know yeah he hit women he definitely hit his wife and he publicly went on the record for hitting women and he lived in a tax haven but you know what he was really good at pretending to run with a gun like mm. you know but i also understand that he you know we'd be poor film critics journalists punters general sort of like appreciators of cinema because you can't deny the fact that he was just an icon and, and like you said you're like he had such screen presence and he was such a influential figure in that way like so i i have to assume there was so many people who were like actors in the or wanting to be actors in like the 60s and 70s who looked at him and were like yes that's what i want to do because like that's just something that happens like loads of people see people on screen and think that that seems like the life for me (laughs) and yeah you can't disentangle that and his macho kind of like persona that he had through bond and onwards in which he you know kind of like played with in in various movies like i said the lumet movies or you know the rock or whatever um you can't disentangle that from the fact that there was clearly like a really dark edge to that that appeared in his personal life and, you know, obviously people were sharing, like, fun stories about when they worked with him and things like that. And it kind of gets to that thing of, like, someone can be, like, really nice to you on, like, an individual basis. But, like, you know, like, that doesn't necessarily mean that in the kind of, like, the summation of it, they were a decent person. Oh, I'm sorry. Man that you worked with. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Man that he worked with. He was very good to you. Of course he, of course he would be. Respects men. He doesn't respect women. <laughs> that doesn't mean that he doesn't respect women just because he respects you. So yeah, I, I I do also understand the outpouring of grief when a celebrity dies and the parasocial relationship that we have to them. Mm. But I think we are entering 
rightly into an age of caution as more and more stuff comes out or is on public record and more accessible you know because it's often now you know people like what you mean this person who was alive at this time and has died at this time you know how how the internet has kind of put stuff forward on this strange digital ledger (laughs) that we kind of all have but also i'd just like to argue that like being good at acting doesn't make you a good person i don't understand how we've conflated the two (laughs) yeah it kind of reminds me a lot of a million years ago (laughs) at the start of the year when kobe bryant passed away Mm. where you know like there were people who were rightly pointed out that he had a history of sexual assault you know that he had been uh on trial for it and that he was not acquitted yes of that and then like there was such an a vitriolic response to people pointing that out talking about wanting to tear him down and things like that anything like they're not saying that he wasn't a great basketball player they're not saying that he didn't do good things in terms of like raising money for charity and things like that they're pointing out that he also did like some very bad things and you kind of have to reckon with the totality of a person you know when they die and not everything is going to be good but also not everything is like trying to tear them down and define them as just that one thing you know you have to be able to see the complexity of a person absolutely so we'll go on to the main topic for this week, which uh, is not about a complex person. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about the new Borat movie, Bob Borat subsequent movie film, which also has a bunch of different subtitles that change over the course of the movie. You and I have both seen it. I, I watched it last week. You watched it during the week. And we thought it'd be fun to talk about because it's a movie that... Uh, has made a you know a, a decent size impact. A lot of people seem to be watching it more so than I think a lot of Amazon Prime's offerings gen to get attend uh, to get seen. But also there are, and this was pointed out in like um, several articles, including one that you shared with me, that there is a there are some very queasy ethical elements mm. to Borat in concept in terms of its production that I think are worth discussing, and then get to the heart of really you know the morals of doing something like that a kind of a big prank slash mockumentary um production like that it's interesting that you say not a complex person mm. because well, I... borat isn't complex <laughs> um, but sasha baron cohen i think is very complex yeah but i think borat is the kind of clowning equivalent of the sort of naive kind of because borat is essentially this he's actually like a wide-eyed innocent you know, he, mm. he comes across and his ideas are sort of handed down to him and he just believes them. Like, yeah. as journalists go, <laughs> he's not particularly inquisitive about what's been given to him. And I think mm. it's this idea of, like, you know, if you just give people the room to keep talking in that sort of Louis Theroux way, or is it just handing someone enough rope to hang themselves with? So I think mm. you're asking a very simple mechanic to do an awful lot of work and i think this is what i've been finding in terms of reading more responses that are coming out kind of around borat but also around a lot of people re-watching the american office there's some really amazing articles about dwight um mm. in kind of the trump era now and you know context is as ever a very strange fluid nuanced thing so it's not kind of criticising the writers of The Office for the character of Dwight, but it's more about, you know, as we 
said in the previous episode, Ed, you know, this hits different. Mm. And I... Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was just agreeing. Oh, thanks. You're welcome to agree with me. I love <laughs> being right. <laughs> mm, love a bit of consensus. But I think, yeah, Borat is a simpleton who mm. is the kind of flashpoint for a lot of complex things that are mean to be happening. But I think this is where it gets a bit icky, right? Because is it meant to be like, oh, no, it's all very simple or is it massively intellectual? And I think sometimes it gets a bit slippery in terms of how you do satire, because I think where it's done really well. And again, it's not interacting with the public. It's entirely scripted. Everyone's an actor and involved. But I keep coming back to being there. Mm-hmm. Um uh, with Peter Sellers and that's a fantastic I think it's I think it's one of the longer lasting kind of pieces of satirical film that's out there because it manages to do a very Chris Morris dialectic kind of thing rather than looking to one specific person or political party or movement it's it kind of takes a slightly wider view and a broader channel and looks at kind of archetypes and mm-hmm. and certain responses and like reactionary stuff but peter sellers as chance the gardener is essentially this like too pure naive person and everyone is kind of drawn to him and simultaneously tries to use them use him for their own gain and yeah. will just take whatever he means to be what they want it to mean mm-hmm. <laughs> which is very interesting hijinks ensue and i think with borat which i i enjoyed watching as I as I watched it, it didn't like blow my mind in terms of anything particularly new because I enjoyed the first Borat film. I have not watched the first Borat film in a very long time. I didn't watch it in the run up to this because I kind of just wanted to talk about subsequent movie film. And I think what is interesting about it and what I think you pointed out to me, Ed, uh, last week is the way of sort of getting around him being too famous and recognisable mm. to have that naive, oh, who recognises him? Who can actually, like, you know, the, the prank's gone if you know the jig is up from the beginning, is to introduce his daughter and to come back to America at a time when Amy Cody Barrett is, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is dead, and Amy Coney Barrett is on the Supreme Court, and uh, who knows? Oh God, try not to think about Tuesday, Ed. When you know, and, and to actually see it through, you know, a young a young woman in America, like that's mm. that's the flashpoint for so much of the points, you know, the kind of what what they're trying to elicit, and some of some of, you know, in a scene where talking to a you know in a women's health center and i'm like heavily air quoting all of (laughs) that entire uh, title where a pastor essentially pushes aside the fact that this girl has been from what he understands statutorily raped by her father and is pregnant through incest and just says it doesn't matter where we're at god has life now and god doesn't make mistakes is horrifying and Mm. but again a lot of the commentators that i've been reading including um i apologize if i'm pronouncing your name wrong because i absolutely loved your article misha or mika i think it's misha fraser carroll misha fraser carroll in the independent and also to a you know not as specific as borat but like um looking at pranks in general olivia cathcart 
um, who's a comedian and, and writing in Pace magazine um, about prank shows are the absolute worst. It's like the article. The, the more that I'm sort of reading about that, it's like, well, don't we already know that, Ameri- mm. that Americans feel this way? Like, what what new what new stuff are we finding? Are we just reaffirming this? Where where should the joke be? And again, like um, Misha Fraser Carroll goes into great detail um, in her article about the um, production and people involved in Borat's subsequent movie film, where um, the villagers in Romania, in Glod, where it was filmed, were really horrified with what they'd sort of been involved with and didn't really understand until the end. And the sort of only decent sort of human being in... Um, <laughs> in the entirety of a subsequent movie film, Janice Jones seemed to have been sort of like not fully aware of what she was involved with. And he was like, oh, you know, but people sign release forms and stuff. And it's like, yeah, but if this kind of stuff has happened to you and you're, con- and because essentially you've been confused, are you really in your right mind to sign a release form? And I think, you know, the thing that I kept saying over and over again as I watched subsequent subsequent movie film was how on earth did the producers get access to these places in America? Mm, and it's because they yeah. lie. It's because they lie and because they manipulate. And on that side, I'm like, oh, great, good, because you should go to that like horrific Deb's ball where God bless that girl who turns around to her dad and says, you're fucking gross. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, 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 you know, amazing. Like to get to get that moment and to understand like that's an incredibly powerful moment in terms of she is at the Deb's ball but she's like criticizing her father for saying how much he'd pay to sleep with another man's daughter who's the same age as his daughter like oh my god Mm -hmm. like in in very little time at all but they use those same techniques on the villages in Glod in to people in Kazakhstan who have been petitioning against this and I really enjoyed Borat I really enjoyed the kind of twist it is the first film that I've seen that actually involves the pandemic. I think similarly to something like Bill and Ted Face the Music, which I also watched this week, it's interesting that there's kind of like, oh, actually we're moving away from the focus on these fathers and talking about like imperfect but sort of maybe well-meaning fathers and putting their daughters in the kind of um, forefront. I think that's really interesting. We haven't seen that before. Um, but just reading about all of this, Ed, I don't know. I feel really really conflicted about it yeah i'm kind of coming from the same place particularly in regards to like say the 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 people in glod and the babysitter in subsequent movie film where they're not really being used to make a satirical point like they're kind of just there for the like plot reasons essentially which is the uh, you know like the, the babysitter's relationship with Borat's daughter is very much about her kind of you know like the, the the daughter kind of like says these horrible things that she's learned from Kazakhstan and talks about you know her the book that she read as a child which essentially is all about vagina dentata and all this sort of stuff and about you know the the strict patriarchy of of Kazakhstan being in place and you know women not having any rights and things like that and then the babysitter is just kind of like opening her eyes to you know, the fact that, you know, she's a woman in a, a free country and that she can do what she wants and all this sort of stuff. And that is, like, very broadly, it's it's kind of, I guess, making some incredibly obvious points, but mainly it's just there to kind of, like, move the plot along to get the 
break in the relationship between her and Borat so she, she goes off on her own and kind of becomes uh, kind of an influencer or tries to become an influencer and in a scene that wasn't included in the movie that they just released on Twitter like ends up in the press room at the White House yeah which is such a, a wild thing that you kind of I, I can understand they didn't put it in the movie because like where would it go but like it's still like a really funny thing like uh, satirizing that particular element of like the kind of women that really get ahead particularly in the sphere of trump world you know of like just basically if you're blonde beautiful and like spout right-wing talking points you can get into pretty much any room you like but other than that like it's not making satirical points it's just kind of like yeah we just kind of like lied to this woman and to kind of advance the plot that we were telling and that was it as opposed to lying to the militia types when Borat goes and ends up performing on stage or lying to get into CPAC where you're kind of like getting people on the record kind of espousing awful views which are genuinely like revealing in some ways and that's that's kind of where the ethics of it gets really murky is it's kind of like you're not really making a point with these lies you're just being like we kind of need these scenes and for some reason we're not gonna like take the time to just like film them with actors which would probably be the more um effective way of getting that point across Mm. and i think there's some it's sort of a microcosm in a way into the larger argument of the current place of satire in modern society because i Mm. genuinely don't think the majority of people who claim to be satirists are up to it Mm. And I don't think what we are in is unprecedented. We're in neo-fascism. And I really admire Sasha Baron Cohen's genuine activism work against Facebook. Yeah. And that it was only shy of two weeks ago that Facebook were like, oh yeah, no, we're taking down all of the anti-Holocaust stuff. Mm-hmm. And, or not even anti-Holocaust. What am I even saying? You know what I mean? That, you know... Holocaust denial. Holocaust denial. Thank you. Apologies. Hol- We're finally taking down Holocaust denial stuff. It's like, oh, wow. Good. F- Do you want a biscuit? Like, mm. this isn't a cause for celebration. It's it's holding head and hands time. And mm. Or like a month ago when they finally started, like, really cracking down on QAnon stuff. Yeah. Like, and it's this sickly position that we found ourselves in where platforms are trying to simultaneously say oh, we're just a platform, we are not, we're we're like, we're a communication service, not a broadcaster, Mm -hmm. you know, because no one can sue the phone line company, (laughs) no one can sue BT for like, abuse, but they're not that, and legislation hasn't caught up, and simultaneously they say, oh no, we're just a platform, and yet they have algorithms to produce clicks, so they are manipulating views and Mm. opinions and stuff like you guys you can't have it both ways but I found like a lot of Borat like I mean the bit that genuinely had my like where I (laughs) sort of chewed my fist for comfort was when he goes to I think it's in February when the first cases of coronavirus are starting to appear is it the Conservative Conference, the American yes. Conservative Conference, where Mike Pence yeah, is CPAC. speaking? Yeah, CPAC, thank you. And he runs in in KKK robes. Mm-hmm. And the majority of people are like, 
very, doing like big what the fuck faces. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, there you go. And how he sort of tries to negotiate with someone when he's uh, basically being escorted out later on, being like, if you let me go, I'll give you my clan robes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but again, it's kind of like, what what else are we what else are we finding out? And like the little sort of Facebook jokes and the fact that kind of, and apologies, spoilers everyone, <laughs> but Borat's village ends up becoming like a click farm and mm. for, for Facebook. And that there is, you know, it's actually not just uh, Janice Jones, who's the decent person. There's like some really great Jewish women and a Holocaust survivor that he talks yeah. to. And it is kind of funny that Borat takes it being like, oh, the Holocaust did happen. Mm. My my personal national ideology holds forth, but I still think it's a bit. I just think it's a bit knackered. I don't think it's actually fresh enough to really make the impact that it wants to. Because of like of all the people at this time, who are you going to call Borat? Really? Because mm. I remember watching a fair bit of this. Is a oh sorry Ed, I forgot the name again. <laughs> uh. Who is America? Who is America? That's right, isn't it? Because This Is America is actually a brilliant piece of artistic <laughs> work. Who is America? Which, again, is kind of like, is a really interesting question because America has always had an identity crisis mm. because everyone can say, I'm an American, and yet that means whatever that person thinks it means yeah, and is more to them. But even watching Who's America, I was like, well, why are we that shocked that a sort of Republican or like far right leaning guy is racist and is emboldened by talking to someone who's clearly so like full of like covered in prosthetics says, you know, mm. <laughs> I did not work for Mossad, you know, is like, what, 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 what new stuff are we learning and what are we actually satirizing? Is it in Chris Morris's words, you know, the jester who's there for the pleasure of the court? Mm. And I and I don't have the answers, Ed. I'm not trying to say I have the answers, but I just I'm not sure this is quite it. And yet, and yet, I still sort of enjoyed watching it. But I think it's from a maybe a sense of nostalgia. But at the end, there's that kind of like, oh, you know, now go and vote. But mm. what? But you know, the 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 one moment, the one moment that genuinely felt fresh to me, is when. Borat is staying with two guys in Texas who were like really into QAnon. Yeah. And when they're looking through the book that he has from Kazakhstan, where there's all of these illustrations about how babies are born. Mm -hmm. And one of them actually says, that's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah. So they understand what that is. They understand, they can, you know, and it's trying to look at people as, actual human beings with a full range of like thoughts and beliefs and in what ways they're conned and in what ways they're not like that was fascinating that we didn't sort of develop that anymore sort of bothered me i just i just think it's running old software in an age of new media yeah i think um the the central problem i think is that if you compare it to what borat the first borat movie did or what Sash Baron Cohen did with the Ali G show, the American version, where obviously he was over here doing loads of stuff and talking to various Americans is like, he was really good, and he still is, but you know, he was really good at teasing out people's prejudices and kind of like, you know, there's that whole scene in the first movie where he goes to like the dinner party with like the the upper, the, the high society Southern women mm -hmm. and like, 
he kind of like teases out their prejudices and like gets behind the, the, the gentility of it all. And then here, like now, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, all that stuff that people would, would kind of like secretly admit to a guy who they didn't realize was a comedian is just out there all the time. People are constantly writing about, you know, like openly espousing racist and fascist views on Facebook. We have lots of politicians in the US who will out and out say like just like completely outraged and horrible things all the time and so while I think there's lots of really funny stuff in in borrowed movie film and I do think like I'd stand by what I said last week about it being way better than like a 14 year and late <laughs> movie sequel uh, has any right to be there are for the most part a lot of it just kind of feels like he's kind of just exposing to stuff that we just see all the time on the news anyway yeah like there isn't much at the like rally that he goes to where there's like the performance that feels different stuff that you'll just see shared on Facebook anyway. And like particularly, you know, as we're recording this, there was that video going around just the other day about Trump supporters nearly running a Biden Harris bus off the road in Texas. And like, that is just so horrifying. And like, like there's not much in the movie that can really surprise when you talk about it in that context Mm. where, you know, there are people out there who have that kind of like, bloodlust and that like have been completely consumed by these paranoid conspiracy things and and like you i found that bit where he's staying with the two guys who are really into QAnon, like to be the most interesting and the thing that i thought was the most like impactful in some ways and yeah i that, i i totally agree with you i feel like it's generally pretty funny and like a good time and there's some great jokes in some moments that are like incredibly like shocking like like you you talk about him going to the synagogue with the two jewish women and there's two moments from that that just kind of made me like catch my breath one was when he says he's basically wants to die so he says he's going to a synagogue and waiting for the next mass shooting to happen yeah which is yeah. just this one like tossed off line that i kind of thought was like oh god and then he shows up and he's like walking in with this <laughs> this just absolutely horrifying caricature of a Jewish person kind of like the prosthetics and like puppet puppets on his hands and things like that. I just kind of like, wow, (laughs) this is, this is truly horrifying. And and I I remember seeing someone on face on um, Twitter posting, like when the movie first came out saying like me every five minutes, Sasha Baron Cohen is Jewish. Sasha Baron Cohen is Jewish. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen is Jewish. <laughs> Just having to kind of like remind themselves of all the horrible, of all the horrible things he says and does. And yeah, I, I feel like the movie just kind of does feel as if he's warming over like an approach that, while still very funny, just doesn't have quite the capacity to to shock and astound in the way that it used to. Yeah. Uh, which I think also then kind of like blunts its effectiveness as as satire because you do kind of need i think satire to work it needs to kind of like be really bracing and yeah this kind of isn't it's kind of just like it's weirdly comforting yeah and i guess that's why what i sort of responded to it whilst i was watching it because there is Mm. something nostalgic about like oh he's pulled him out of retirement for one last go Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah, this sort of focus on America, where I'm actually much more interested to see Ali G and Brexit Britain. <laughs> mm. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we uh, recommend a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, kind of variations on a the theme, but Sassy Justice, 
the mm. 15 minute offering from Trey Parker and Matt Stone and Peter Serafinowicz. I like that these guys are working together. <laughs> I can't help it. I wonder how uh, how they found each other's uh, numbers. And it's a deep fake flash in the pan sort of little sketch offering about just kind of using deep fakes to talk about deep fakes. And I, again, enjoyed it. Um, I think it's actually a really neat piece of almost more like a PSA than satire. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of horrible that it's been left to comedians to do PSAs now. <laughs> but it is pretty... F- I, I like Peter Serafinowicz an awful lot. I think his sketch show is so overlooked and underrated. Yeah. And I think he really gives it a fresh kind of perspective. And you can feel the bits that are more sort of like Parker and Stone that are a little bit like, okay, yeah, we, we get it. <laughs> but I think it's well worth watching think there's moves to develop it into maybe like a film or more i think they've already sort of made their point maybe they're having like a different premise and working with something a bit more episodic or narrative i don't know um but i just think it's always just lovely to appreciate the vast voice talent of peter serafinowicz as he does Mm. a lot in this so yes that is sassy justice which you can find on youtube and it's been promoted the hell out of it to me on twitter so maybe you've already seen it but in the off chance that you haven't that name again is sassy justice cool i'm going to recommend a mini series on netflix that just came out on friday and pretty much everyone seems to have watched but i'll recommend it anyway because it's really good it's the queen's gambit the adaptation of the walter tevis novel Uh, previous adaptations of his work include the hustler the Colour of Money and The Man Who Fell to Earth. So kind of like a great pedigree of adaptations. I think this one is another very good one. It's about the creation of a, a, a chess prodigy played in adulthood by Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, set it starting in the 1950s and moving through to the 1960s as she kind of develops her talents as this kind of like great uh, chess player and develops this close relationship with her, but tense relationship with her adopted mother played by marielle heller in a rare um, acting role which she's very very good love her and like the novel i think it's really good at handling the mind space of someone who is like a great at chess who is able to visualize all of the possible moves and outcomes and how that kind of translates into someone being a real type a personality i think it's also really good in terms of the sexual development of the character in terms of them trying to come to terms with their brilliance in a field but also their you know eventual weaknesses and it's just a really entertaining and really compelling character study and again Anya Joy is great in it uh, Bill Camp is fantastic as her chess mentor he's only really in the first episode but he's like really great in it uh, it's written and directed by Scott Frank who I think who I believe also kind of like worked with Soderbergh in the 90s I think he wrote out of sight so he's you know kind of like a great act uh, a great writer who can really kind of like tease out the details of an adaptation like this and it's you know seven episodes long doesn't overstay its welcome really feels as if it does justice to the book which is uh terrific if uh, people haven't read it i think it's kind of hard to get hold of i remember i had to borrow it from a library 12 years ago to read it and it was really took a really long time to get hold of it but if you can it's well worth reading as well as and the show is just like hugely enjoyable one of the best things netflix has put out in ages so that's the queen's gambit which you can watch on uh, netflix 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all these places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 